Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. I'm very excited that today we have guest speaker Tim Kendall. Uh, you may have seen him on the recent documentary called The Social Dilemma. He has presented materials in front of Congress on what's going on with platforms. He's been working in Facebook at the early days, Pinterest, and most recently is also CEO of Moment, which we will definitely be getting into today. So, Tim, great to have you, and, and thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Alex, for, for having me on. You know, if I was to give my one-sentence overview and overgeneralize things, I want to hear it from you. It seems like what you were saying, whether it was in the testimony, um, which we've actually covered on the show, um, obviously, you know, the documentary that so many folks have seen, Social Dilemma, it seems like kind of what you're getting at here is these big content platforms like Facebook, they're matchmaking. The algorithms that are, that are you know, connecting users with what content they see has been, I would say, corrupted by greed, right? These algorithms have been trained to send you stuff that maximizes for engagement. And what the algorithms have figured out is that the way they get the most engagement is to send you, you know, the salacious, triggering content, much of it fake content. But nonetheless, these algos have performed their job and have really maximized engagement. And then they serve more ads and, and make more money. Uh, am I off or am I, you know, how, how would you put it in your words? Well, I, I, I think it's pretty, I think it's pretty close. Um, you know, I think that the word greed implies that there's like some intention, some that we can, we can absolutely know the intention of the company, which I don't think we can, um, their underlying motive. It also sort of implies that maybe the algorithm has a motive, which, which it doesn't. Um, but what I, what I think it's safe to say is that the, the algorithm has been given a mandate, which is to say, Okay, we got Alex on this on this service. Um, algorithm, go figure out how to get Alex to spend more time on it tomorrow, and a little bit more time on it the next day. And it doesn't obviously the company doesn't supply the algorithm with um, with a reason why. <laughs> um, but look, like you know, Facebook and, and these other companies are publicly traded and they need to grow at a steady and persistent rate in order to maintain uh, their large valuations. And their large valuations are how they keep and retain and attract the people who build the service. So it's this, it's this, it's this interwoven system um, that's kind of built upon itself that, that really does start with you know, the product and the service, which is designed to extract more and increasing amounts of our attention um, in order to generate the revenue, increasing amounts of revenue, which then leads to a persistent and growing valuation, which then allows us to uh, hire more and more people to work on these algorithms to make them better and more sophisticated. Um, you know, I think a, maybe a slightly different, different tack is that, um, in terms of describing the problem is you've got an, you've got an attention extractive based business model paired up with a all knowing technology that is getting smarter and more sophisticated every day. And it's a technology that in many ways in certain dimensions knows you better than you know yourself and certainly knows your the, the dimensions of of your human weaknesses better than you understand them and that that is what is uh i think that's what's what's scary um and i think the other thing that's scary is that there's sort of this this separation between the leaders of the company and then the actual algorithm is in part what's scary because the the management leaders can say What's so bad about getting Alex to spend a little bit more time on the platform tomorrow? And, and they can say that sort of um, with a straight face 
when we're talking about an artificially intelligent algorithm that's kind of taking care of the content aggregation and sorting on its own, because they don't have to necessarily know the how of this algorithm. And in many cases, I don't think completely do understand the how. And, and this is really how we've gotten to this, gotten into this jam, right? Which is that you've got a, you've got a, um, you've got an algorithm that's st started to, by virtue of what you've mandated it to do, started to wreak havoc on the individual in terms of their mental health and on society in terms of the fabric of how society functions. Um, and what Facebook and others seem to be continuing to do is, is they're a bit late to the party in understanding the, the severity of the ramifications. I think the best illustration of this, and then I'll pause, <laughs> the best illustration of this is, is the 2016 election, whereby it is quite clear in retrospect that that 2016 election was, was swayed and, and, and the, the artificial intelligence algorithms and combined with the meddling probably tipped the election. The company, including its leader, didn't acknowledge or completely understand that until months or years later. And that is what this, that's what this disaggregation of like the leadership and then the actual underlying algorithm, that's, that's an example of problem create. This idea of, you know, there's a black box, you got, you got matchmaking is, you know, is, is in the book, right? We actually describe matchmaking as one of the four core functions of the platform business model, right? Along with rules and standards, which I think we'll get into a little bit, a little bit later today, you know, when it comes to kind of censorship and, and how do you kind of curate that ecosystem. But just around the matchmaking, I think is what you're getting at here is there's a disconnect between you know, management, whether what their understanding is, what their goals are as a public company, what they need to do to serve as shareholders, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, essentially, well, what is the mechanism that this black box, this matchmaking, this algorithm, this AI is achieving these results and to what end? And, 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 and you know, I actually have up here is your testimony to the House Committee on Energy and Commerce, right? Where we, we had covered this uh, um, when, when you had first done this, right? Where you're talking about here, I was director of monetization at Facebook. And it seems like there was this moment for you when you started to say, this is great, we can achieve these KPIs and growth and engagement, but at what cost, right? And, and where there was this kind of moral um epiphany that or, or or tipping point where you said i mean you look at the impact that this engagement is having and you look at how the algorithm is accomplishing this engagement and you look at what that's doing to the individual and you say this isn't good <laughs> right i mean what, what was there that kind of moment in time that threshold where you were just said oh this is it's just too much yeah i mean i it I'm, I'm a little embarrassed to admit that it wasn't that long ago, right? Like it, it, I think that the, I came at it maybe a little bit differently than, than, than most who are now speaking out about it in that I think that I was initially what the, the, the flag in my head was really around mental well-being in that, you know, I, I started noticing when I was still at Pinterest, um, you know, looking around, you know, at a restaurant, seeing everybody on their phone, seeing families of four or five, and no one was talking to each other. Um, and I was, you know, I, and I've shared this uh, uh, in other forums, like, I have seen, um, I've been around addiction for a long time in my family and extended family. And so I know how it operates and how corrosive it can be. And I know sort of the generalistic behaviors that are associated with it. And so, I was noticing in myself and I was noticing in people around me that there, there are absolutely, there, there are ways that we treat this phone that mimic how, how people treat addictive substances in terms of denial, in terms of, um, 
you know, not wanting to part with it, you know, having, having uh, withdrawal characteristics when they are separated from their phone. And so that's what, that's what threw the flag up for me originally was, wow, there is something about this supercomputer in our pocket and the services that have been built on top of it that are just sucking us in in a way where, and this is really where the definition of addiction plays, where we are unable to make decisions that are in our best interest in the medium and long term because of the sheer magnitude of the temptation in the short term. I mean, this is what happens with, with, with drugs and alcohol, right? Like a, a, the, the, the alcoholic or the drug addict knows that, that the next day they're not going to feel good. And they know that there could be even longer term ramifications of them, you know, drinking a lot tonight. But the near-term feedback loop is just too enticing. And we see that, we see that in the abstract that plays out with a phone every hour of the day for a lot of us. Absolutely. And, and, and I mean, I mean, I want to come, you know, let's go to, I mean, we're going to have a lot to dig into yeah, the nitty gritty on Facebook and and and, yeah. and these content platforms. But I think this is a nice segue to say, you, you know, we've seen, for example, um, I would say they, they have tried, uh, you know, Apple's giving you some controls and lock in. But but I've got I've got moment up here uh, on and that I'm sharing. I mean, take me through this, right? You know, to me, what's interesting is there is. A component here, which is saying, how do you cut down on your phone usage and kind of this addiction, which is absolutely true. And there's a myriad of evidence to support that, but also about building stronger and, and, and closer relationships, you know, with that, that key circle. I thought that was also a very interesting kind of part to this. So what, what's your overview for how would you describe moment? And, 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 and I think that's some of your day to day today these days, right? Yeah, I mean, I think there are kind of three pieces to, to moment. And, and the third piece is actually kind of turned into a whole nother project that, that I'm working on that I can touch on because um, it does relate to how we interact and have relationships and sustain relationships with people. But with moment, it's really about helping people develop awareness. People are not aware most of the time of, of how much they use their phone. Most people think they use it two hours a day. Uh, we ask them that at the at the front end of our of their experience, or we have asked them that historically, and then they 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 measure it and they realize, oh, it's like four hours a day. So they're off, but that's how disconnected perception is from reality. And just that that awareness wake up is helpful for people. Then we have a whole series of tips and tricks um, for people who want them, right? To 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 get their device into a realm where people can behave more deliberately around their phone as opposed to sort of unconsciously uh, where they're not, they can't really predict. Oh, I'm going to spend an hour of my day on my hour today on my phone or five hours. I don't know. We'll see what happens. Um, and then the last thing is um, we have found, and this is true in a lot of the research on behavioral addiction, which is really what this phone thing is um, that groups of people and co-committing to change, behavior change is really one of the most effective ways to catalyze behavior change and sustain it. So within moment, we have an ability for you to form a group of people who can kind of co-develop habits and keep each other accountable because the group feature within moment allows you to see how much each person in the group is using their phone. So that's, that's pretty useful. And you've had over 8 million users, right? Something like that today. Yeah. We have 8 million people who have, who have at various points in the last several years have, have downloaded the product. Um, so a lot of demand for it. And then I think in looking at this problem, we've learned that there's sort of a, an adjunct problem, which is just that, um, which I would summarize as we've never been more connected to one another in the history of the world. While at the same time, we've probably never as a collective species felt more lonely. <laughs> right. Which to us presents an opportunity whereby, well, that sort of suggests that maybe these, these services that are supposed to help with our 
socialness aren't actually working as designed or certainly aren't working in our best interest. So we've actually endeavored to build a product and we've built about five different prototypes in this area. We're still experimenting. It's going to take a while, I think, to get it right, which is, okay, if I started from scratch and I just wanted to build something for Alex that would really help him create and sustain really sustain because your friendships already exist. Like think of the five to 10 people in your life to whom you care about the most. How do we help you dedicate your mind share and attention to those people in a sustained way that helps you feel close to them? Because it turns out that that if, if you can achieve that, you actually can do more for someone's health and well-being than if you put them on a diet or give them an exercise regimen or have them quit smoking cigarettes. Like your social well-being is actually the biggest predictor of longevity. It's the biggest predictor of um, pushing out the onset of disease. And it's the biggest predictor of how good you feel about the quality of your life at the end of it. So it seems silly that there isn't something that guides and helps people to do that. We sort of leave it all to chance. We're counting calories over here and making sure that I spend, you know, two hours a week on my Peloton, but I'm not keeping track of anything as it relates to my relationships. It's tricky because you don't want to turn it into a customer relationship management software program, right? That like <laughs> you've got all your friends in Salesforce. So it's, it's just trying to um, thread that needle. But we think it's a really interesting problem and one that, one that really does – it really is a byproduct opportunity of, of how social networks have been built with this ex attention extractive model, which has allowed them to, to develop into things that don't really serve us around, around this dimension of just helping me stay close with the people that really matter. It's breadth versus depth. Yes. It's a centimeter deep. And I've got all these people, some I know, some I don't know, and I'm just scrolling through the feed. Versus, I mean, now, especially with COVID, right? Just, I mean, where you were having just that proximity. I mean, humans are social creatures. And now you, you literally can't have that proximity in many circumstances. And not to mention, then the, the vacuum that has probably been created is happily sucked up by these social networks and content platforms. Yes. yes. And I mean, there's your dilemma in a nutshell, right? It's, it, and so I really love that idea of, 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 I mean, I think the um, time tracking and screen time, that is great. And, and I think having an independent product uh, separate from the actual, um, you know, addiction creator that is say Apple and, and you know, on my yeah. iPhone, um, makes sense i'd want a neutral party to help me kind of cure my own addiction curious if you ever run into any issues with apple but i'm sure not yet um but maybe eventually but anyway this next thing right how do you kind of deepen those relationships and just um being that kind of mindfulness and attentive and 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 aware and and i think yeah that's something just society um and people need so i think that's very exciting and, and, you know, hope you uh, keep us posted on, on when, you know, that product also comes out. Let's go back to, uh, to the fun punching bag that is Facebook. Um, you know, as I mentioned, you know, on the show, we talk a lot about platform models and, and all these kinds of things. One of the things that we talk a lot about is matchmaking on one side. Kind of we touch on that a little bit, right? The algorithms. Hey, Alex, here's your news feed. Here's what's going in it. Maximizing engagement. The other side, which you also talk a lot about, we haven't gotten into it yet, is around what we would qualify rules and standards. How do you figure out who has access to the network? And then how do you uh, curate and regulate the usage once they're in the network? And you know, uh, you're using these rules and standards to incentivize good behavior and not bad behavior. Um, you, you talk a lot about censorship in addition to the, the matchmaking and, and the algorithm part of this equation. But, you know, those are two both gargantuan topics in and of themselves. I mean, if you were to sit here and say, you know, which one of these is the bigger problem? Or if you could only solve one, 
you know, which one do you think has the bigger impact? Is that a fair question? Is there an either, if, if you had to choose one or the other, does, does one pop out at you as saying, this is the big kahuna? Label the problems again. Matchmaking, the, the AI black box algorithm, giving you this salacious content to maximize engagement. That's one. Yes. And then uh, censorship, you know, and what is right? What is wrong? Censorship. Hey, people are posting this. Uh, it's, it's harassing, it's insensitive. What are we going to do? Are we kicking them off? Are we violating free speech? Right. Kind of the, the censorship bucket, which is pretty big these days too. My intuition, you know, is that you, I think if you solve the incentives around the matchmaking, you actually get at the censorship issues. Yeah. I I'm right there with you. Yeah. So, so, I mean, I think that it's, I've always thought it was, and I'm not the first person to say this, I've always thought it was silly that Facebook said that they're not the arbiters of truth. But, I mean, I guess maybe technically they're not. The the algorithm is, though. The algorithm (laughs) is absolutely um, playing the arbiter role on on an individualized basis. They're they're distorting what truth is depending on who's who's on there. and we, could, we can talk about this later. We can talk about this now. It has been, I would say, astounding and heartening and surprising and encouraging how much Facebook has moved on this issue in the last six to eight weeks. You were the director of monetization. I think, for example, if we look at, you've got these algorithms. They're maximizing attention. And the algorithms don't really care if the news is fake or true. If anything, with the algorithms, probably, you know, maybe they don't know, maybe they do know, the more salacious material, the more triggering material is probably more fake than it is real. And that actually does better in the algorithm. Correct. And then if you say, okay, well, let's look at the media industry. Well, Facebook and Google have pretty much destroyed their business model. (laughs) Um, You got these media organizations that are just struggling to survive. I feel like every few months there's more layoffs. And, you know, is it is it almost that Facebook has brought along the media? You know, the media industry has had to learn how to survive and they are now playing in a system. I've got another little chart here that shows you know, a nice little graph of just the percentage of people getting their news on social media, just going up and up and up and and down for the traditional media folks, right? So you're being disintermediated. Facebook and Google are doing the disintermediation. And what those algorithms are saying is the more salacious and triggering stuff, regardless of whether it's true, is is probably going to get you more ad dollars. And by the way, you're barely profitable as it is. So... You know, is this kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy uh, that, you know, unfortunately, going back to your point, if you can solve that matchmaking challenge, it can help kind of cure (laughs) some of these other things that we see going on as a byproduct? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's fair. I mean, it's interesting, like, I I have seen some commentary on this that, that I happen to agree with that when you, when you think about the degree to which our country has become polarized by virtue of misinformation and, 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 and echo chambers. Um, so a bunch of the commentary, if you read it in, in a larger context going back decades, the very beginning of this is actually cable news. Mm. The beginning, when they started seeing, and, and I, I'm blanking on exactly what the, what the metric was that they used to understand sort of pol- polarized groups of people, but they really started seeing a divergence when cable news took. So mm. when CNN and Fox, you know, in the, in the mid-90s or mid to late 90s really became these, right, they, they had their own... They had their own algorithms. They, they were tuned for different parts of the political spectrum. And people tuned in 
and and they both offered a different you know reality distortion field and what facebook so so that was news and that was traditional media curated to fit a group and in a sense what facebook has done is is just taken that playbook and and atomized it and and just multiplied it you know created a monster on the basis of that you know multiplied out to you know as as roger mcdamee said in the film you know three billion truman shows yeah i've got my other chart up here now which is just the downward sloping graph of americans trust in mass media yeah it's much easier to have standards um really strongly upheld standards when you're profitable when you're not profitable and you know every and 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 death is around the corner you're you're in survival mode and you know this as the startup guy i mean survival mode and profit mode are two very different modes i think what happens when you're in the survival mode is and 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 it's hard for people to imagine facebook being in survival mode but there really were times when we were you know, there were, there were periods over which growth was flat. There were periods over which it wasn't clear how we were going to grow revenue year over year. Um, and the interesting thing that happens from an organizational psychology standpoint is when you're, in, when you're as an organization in survival mode, um, what you tell yourself, certainly what I told myself at times, and, and, and I've heard about this playing out in other organizations, is you think, well, we'll go, we'll go do the right thing at the, later. Right. We'll we'll make sure that this 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 thing is buttoned up once we once once we have a little little uh, slack in the system, um, mm-hmm. and you know we'll and, and that's always that's the, the the realities of of capitalism and and the quarterly reporting et cetera et cetera make that really hard. You were mentioning this that uh, you know that user growth is so critical. Right. And to me, the interesting thing, if we look at the past few quarters of performance, you had Q2, right? You had the boycott Facebook stuff go into full gear. How does Facebook do Q2? Actually, fantastic. I bought the dip. Facebook was not damaged. Now you have Q3, um, where there's just a lot of disagreement on either side of the political spectrum in terms of how Facebook has handled itself for better or for worse. Say mostly, actually, probably both sides think for for worse. Um, but we also just saw their Q three Q three results, and they're fine. If if anything, they were actually great. Um, you line that up against Twitter. Twitter had flat user growth, flat from Q two to Q three of this year, thirty six million day DAUs in the U S. And you know that their product matchmaking teams were hitting that algo as aggressively as possible just to maintain par, right? You know, God forbid it should decline. But we saw Twitter stock fall over 20%, you know, day after they released earnings. To me, what that's reflective of, and maybe some of that goes to maybe some of what you're getting at here is just the, you know, name of the book is Modern Monopolies. I actually don't think Twitter is a monopoly. They're a 30 billion market cap company. They have a strong niche, but it's a niche. They don't have multiple content platforms, right? Like they should have, I think, had their own version of TikTok and they missed that boat. But, you know, Facebook has Facebook and WhatsApp and Instagram. I mean, it is full on platform conglomerate status. Yep. Yep. And and to me, even though there are disgruntled users almost on both sides or, you know, all over the place, you see the juggernaut just actually continue on pretty much uh, completely undamaged if not stronger for it and i think you do see vulnerability with the smaller ones like a twitter um which would be happy to be one-tenth the size of facebook uh and it's not you know it's obviously way smaller do you see that monopoly status as 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 something that a facebook or a google holds and 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 now and 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 i guess their willingness to change being influenced by just that market dominance position or am I off here? I think both companies clearly uh, have tremendous power. And 
you know, I, I, I listened to an interview with, um, Emily Chang and, and from Bloomberg and, and Bill Gurley, who's a, you know, well-known venture capitalist, uh, from benchmark. Um, and she asked the same question, um, about, you know, Facebook and Google and, you know, he, he was diplomatic, but he, he said, look, he said, we, we at Benchmark, we invest in these startups and a lot of times they get into various flavors of conversations with Facebook or Google and those conversations feel very one-sided. There is a clear David and Goliath dynamic um, and, you know, I think that's been true for a while. And I think that, um, you know, I don't spend as much time thinking about Google's business as I do Facebook's um, because I've never, I've never worked there and I just haven't spent as much time thinking about just like the positional and structural dynamics of, of Google's business. But Facebook's business, you know, they've got a series of Metcalf's Law networks that if as long as a service is providing generally a good enough service for people network, you know, Metcalf's law network effect services are unassailable um, in a way that, you know, a, a service like um, Microsoft or, uh, Amazon or others, you know, they don't, they have sort of a different kind of network effect, but, but, but the Metcalf's law telephone type network effect, um, you know, original AT&T network effect, that's a hard thing to, to put a dent in for startups. So let's run that thread. Okay. You're kind of unassailable here. That's why you're going to the, you know, um, Congressional Commerce Committee, right? That's why I think what we're saying here is this is the role of government is is to is to try to fix someone that is unassailable and and is harming you know their users, their customers. That's why we have multiple different ways that the government could get involved, whether it's you know through the courts, um, whether it's con congressionally with laws. Let's say that you had the power anointed, right? To say, okay, I'm going to fix this. What do you think is the best mechanism to do that? There's a lot of talk about 230. You know, there's, you know, there's just a lot of different theories out there that even if you had the power to do something, yeah. <laughs> what do you do? Um, where where does your gut or where what's your first inclination? I have a somewhat um, low probability idealistic path, um, you know. But but look, if I had a magic wand, this is what I would what I would suggest we do. I would like to see the leaders of of these companies, and let's just for the moment to simplify it, just say Facebook and governments that presumably are responsible for regulating or not, in the case maybe not regulating Facebook. Um, and, then they're, and then they're consumers, right? And there are, there are self-anointed and, and, and uh, institutionally anointed consumer advocates out there, right? Who, who have the voice of consumers at, at, at the, the consumer's interests at, at heart. I think those groups, so Mark, governments from all over the world, and then consumer advocates, you know, an, an anointed leader or two, I think they need to get, a, get together and try to align on what we think reality is today. And what reality is today, in my mind, is that we may have, we, we likely have an existential crisis on our hands with the combination of an extractive-based business model combined with, you know, all-knowing and increasingly sophisticated AI that 
can actually be mitigated if we can arrive at a business model for Facebook that aligns users' interests with the interest of Facebook. Because right now they're divergent. Alex's best interests are just not in the best interests of Facebook. Because your best interest is likely for your health and well-being and the goodness of society to spend less time on the product. They need you to spend more. So what I would love is for that group to get together and say, okay, let's, let's share collective responsibility for how we got here. The government's responsible. They let it all happen. Didn't challenge a single acquisition. You know, didn't, didn't take a peek at 2.30 until, you know, the last year or two. Um, you know, consumers have been complicit in this, in a sense. We make decisions. We do have independent will. And then the companies have, have, have a part to play in this for sure. Okay, so if we, if we can sort of spiritually say, look, the three of us all played a part in this. Let's co-create a path out of this. What does a path out of this look like? Well, I think, it's, I think it's not too dissimilar from, you know, going from extractive energy economies, fossil fuel dependent economies, to an economy that's, that gets energy from clean sources and green sources. So we sort of need to come up with the solar version of Facebook or the electric version of Facebook. And, and then we need Facebook's commitment and government's commitment and then consumer support to allow that to happen. Consumer advocates would need to advocate for consumers to pay for this sort of thing, if that's in fact the model we agree to go to. Government would need to both create incentives, I think probably tremendous tax incentives for this to happen, right? Because we need a, we need a credible path for them to segue and not erode a hundred billion dollar a year in revenue. And I think, I think you can do that with tax incentives, potentially. I mean, you brought up AT&T, you know, you, you had the government say, I mean, this is basically, we're going to accept that you're a monopoly, but we're going to put guardrails around you. We're going to protect things that you might take advantage of, right? Like kicking people off the network or yeah. overcharging these yep. kinds of things. You know, you go. You made the point earlier, right? The matchmaking here, the algorithm, that that curation. Is there a way to uh, open that up to externalize curation and matchmaking? Right. Like, for example, if we took these media companies, which their business model has been destroyed, and said, you know what, Facebook is not going to be allowed to have their own matchmaking algorithm. Now, it's going to be up to third parties. That could be CNN and Fox News. They could use humans or they could use algorithms or a mixture of both. Um, it kind of reminds me of like, like a Drudge Report, for example, right? Where it's like Matt Drudge for like 20 years. I mean, it was a one-man show and he's just curating and he's basically just a curator, right? And is there a form of value creation in the form of curation? And, and, and can we remove the, the platform's ability to own that or at least put um, handicaps on that and maybe focus this kind of amazing brainstorm session that we have and say, your matchmaking isn't going to remain the same. Let's brainstorm a better version to do matchmaking, which Facebook, you're not going to be happy about because now you can't uh, predict to a T what your earnings are going to be, right? Um, and it's going to be out of your control, but it's going to be better for society and maybe we'll give you some incentives to, to make you happy. Is there a, a focused conversation in that structure that you think would at least have a shot? I think it's a really, I think it's a really compelling brainstorm to have. And I do think it is, it is a way to get at this. It could absolutely be a way to get at this misaligned incentive. Um, and to give people some agency over, okay, I know I, I don't have total agency, but at least I can have some, you know, preference around who curates, you know, what I'm, what I'm doing or what, what I'm seeing. 
so I think it's I think it's I think it's interesting. I mean, I also think that you this is just a caveat on even going down the path of subscription. You know, I think even I think even Netflix is guilty here of being, you know, an extractive attention economy participant, even though they're going down uh, what, what we say is sort of best practice for consumer service, which is subscription. Um, but, but look, like they are trying to, I mean, you can just see all the tactics in the product, the pre-rolls, the, the aggressive, you know, episode one flows into episode two. And then the programming is increasingly being influenced by the viewership data from the past. I mean, they are absolutely using technology to prey on our human weakness. Now, the model is subscription, but like they clearly, um, you know, there's a, there's a crazy earnings call that they had. I think it was three or four years ago where some, someone, some analyst asked on the earnings call, what, uh, who is, can you talk a little bit about your competition? Expecting them to, you know, make a commentary on Apple TV or, or HBO plus or whatever, Disney plus said, Oh, you know, our competition is really our, our, our customers sleep and their relationships. So, so which is, which couldn't be a more appropriate characterization of the misalignment of their interests with your interests. Their interest is that you get less sleep and have fewer high-quality relationships or certainly more shallow relationships because you just don't have the time to nurture them. That's their incentive. Your incentive is, is I, I think, not that. That black box. What goes into that black box? How can we, you know, transparency is, is uh, the, the cure-all for all, for, for all evil and misgivings, right? So, how can we shine a big fat light on it? And maybe we don't get all the way there, but. I mean, look, I think part of, I think transparency helps. I totally agree with you. That's, that's a, that's a key principle. I think the part of transparency that seems critical is us as an end user, just having more transparency. And we talk about this at moment and, and we're not the first ones to think about it. What is the impact? What is the impact on you, the individual, of spending five hours a day on your phone? What happens quantitatively to your psychological well-being? And what happens physiologically as a result of this? And what's happening neurologically? That is, that is a mystery. That is not transparent, but that is a knowable problem that we can get to. And I think if people understood the cost, like people, it's, it's now relatively clear that if I eat a lot of cookies every night, I will, there, there will be a consequence to that. And it's, and it's probably increasingly in people's intuition, like quantifiable. Um, but, you know, it, it, would be, it would be helpful, for instance, to know, okay, if I subscribe to Netflix, what is the average impact on my hours of sleep I get at night? Versus the people who don't subscribe to Netflix. Like there's a, there's a transparency just in terms of these services impact on health and well-being that, that is not there, but I believe is knowable. And I do think there's an opportunity there. And, and, and then it allows us to have more informed, make more informed choices. I mean, this was the issue with big tobacco. I, you know, you could smoke cigarettes in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and you could feel real good about it because you didn't think you were doing anything bad to your body. And all of that is before you even talk about kids and what's happening to these kids when they get a cell phone in their hands at like age seven. Uh, and and right. what is that doing to the wiring and, and the development of, of the brain? So, yeah. I'm, I mean, yeah, they're, they're, absolutely. But let's, let's touch on the censorship thing a little bit. So, you know, you, you've uh, elsewhere, you know, talked about that, these platforms, Facebook, they, they don't want to be this arbiter of truth, right? Um, and for whatever reason, they have, been, uh, they have been forced to start taking a side. And once you do take a side or once you kick off someone here or you shadow ban there, right? <sighs> how, do you, in, in, how, do you, how do you draw that line in an objective way? And 
it seems like there really is, it's an oxymoron. There is no way to continue to draw that line in an objective way. You're always now going to be put in a position that you took some kind of action and you know you've you have pissed off another part of your community and i think that's why by the way mark probably smartly as it related to facebook put this off for as long as possible philosophically do you think that you know that that do you see a difference in these content platforms these social networks as as some being you know are they all too closed off you know and they need to be more open are, are some getting the balance right um, and some are too closed? Are they all too open and need to be more closed? I mean, what do you mean by open and closed in this context? I mean, you know, the level of censorship, right? Um, it, which is hard to measure. They're, those stats are kind of difficult to measure. But, you know, there's multiple kinds of censorship that we've talked about on the show, right? It, yeah. One extreme is I'm kicking you off. I'm banning you from the platform forever. The other one is I'm suspending your account. The other one is I'm, I'm shadow banning. I'm limiting the visibility your yeah. message gets. Yeah. Uh, you know, another one would be now I'm, I'm going to modify, right? I'm going to put an alert. I'm going to modify the content. And when we have this conversation on the show, I like to talk about, uh, try to talk about non-political examples because <laughs> sure. everything is so partisan these days. But, you know, when it comes to COVID, for example, there's all these stories about like that Chinese virologist from Hong Kong who was saying that, you know, this uh, COVID was made in a lab. Yeah. And all those videos um, and, and her account has been she's been banned from multiple platforms. The videos have been taken down. If if you're even to show the video of her talking about it, then your account is going to be banned. Right. That's what I mean about censorship. Do you, do you think that you know, these platforms are getting kind of too comfortable with censoring, maybe not everyone, but certain populations. Uh, and, and now it's hard to kind of draw back those lines because you've crossed them. Uh, or, or how do you see it? Well, it's so hard. <laughs> and I know that's, that's not meant to be a cop out, but you know, if you look back in history around, and, and look, I don't, I have no reason to believe that COVID was created in a lab. I don't, I don't believe that. Um, but if you look back in history and you think about some of the, um, the newest ideas that then became mainstream, the new ideas were, are, are, are condemned and, and the people who talk about them are maligned, right? And so, and, but we know historically that some small percentage of those become mainstream and adopted. And so what's the, what is the process by which, you know, craziness gets properly filtered versus potentially interesting doesn't get overly penalized because it's not proven. And that is, that's a hard, I, I don't empathize with, with, with the, the social networks having that on their shoulders right now, but guess what they do. And they're going to have to, they're going to have to come up with the principled way to, to, I don't know what you call that problem, But if it's, if it's solved incorrectly, you could sort of imagine, we'll never have the counterfactual, right? But you could sort of imagine a bunch of really powerful ideas in the future that never get, never see the light of day because of the way that, that, that the lines are drawn. Earth is the center of the universe. And if you say otherwise, well, you're an idiot and you're out of here, right? Yep. Um, yep. I'm with you. I mean, I personally would say, that when it comes to the censorship debate, it's obviously very tough to measure. I would say that Facebook has played that game better than others. And I would say that Zuckerberg has come under a lot of fire for it on both sides. To, to me, it, it, it comes back to the leader and the individual who I feel like there's still something in Zuck, which is saying, 
we need to resist um, being too, you know, too much whack-a-mole and censoring too much. I agree with you. I mean, I, I actually think that his um, defending and coming under a lot of scrutiny around protecting political speech is very important. And, and actually, in principle, I agree with him. Um, and I also agreed with the caveat that they came up with or the qualifier to political speech, which is that, look, political speech, we're not going to correct, we're not going to label it, but look, if it's, if it's going to incite violence, it, 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 it has crossed the line. And I think that's the right line to draw with political speech. And I think what, I think what we've seen recently, you know, if you, if you rewind two, three, four months ago, I think that there was a view that hate speech, as long as hate speech doesn't incite direct violence, it's okay. Holocaust denial is okay. As long as in your Holocaust denial group, you don't say, go do the following things that are violent and hurtful to a group of people. And I think what I respect the, the principle that they use to draw that line, that original line. However, I think that it's a really, it's a tough thing to argue that a group that is inciting hate is not almost definitionally inciting violence by implication. And I think that's where they landed. I wasn't in the room, but to me, that's why they are now starting to say, well, Look, if you, if you incite hate, you are inciting violence. Well, you know what? It's also interesting that we saw is they started to limit leading up to the election, the, the sharing capabilities, right? Uh, you can yeah. only send this message to five people or yes. these, I, I don't think they were tampering with the algo because they need that, that black box to keep humming, but you know, how do I try and on the, on the fringe clamp down on some of these features I've built that yep. help get this, yep. you know, viral nature going? Yeah. Yeah. And they're having to, you know, they're having to make judgment calls and, and, and invent on the fly. I mean, I mean, deciding to throttle the distribution of Stop the Steal on Thursday or Friday of last week. Do, do I think that was the right thing to do given the risk of violence? Yeah, I think it's probably defendable, but it's a judgment call and, and it's reasonable that 70 million people who voted for Trump thinks, think that it's censorship. The last thing, and then we have, we have uh, one or two questions from the audience and we're going a little bit over. Tim, thank you for your time. Yep. The funny thing is there's, so, you know, those leaked audio clips. I mean, although Zuckerberg has clearly made gobs and gobs of money off of Facebook. I mean, yeah, the guy, <laughs> that guy's day to day is, is at times probably unenviable, but at other times probably very enviable. But anyway, what he was saying in these leaked audio clips is Hey guys, actually, the majority of our users seem to be conservatives, and the majority of our user complaints um, are that we are censoring conservatives, you know, rather than the other way around, which was the narrative from the employees in Facebook, which have all, you know, their political donations are through the left and through the sure. roof for the left. Sure. So you got all these really interesting, uh, you know, uh, very complicated dynamics. But you have a question here. Hey, Tim, do, do you allow your kids to use Facebook? <laughs> At what age is it okay to start? Well, I get to punt because my kids are four and six. Uh, so no, they're not. Um, and, and I do, uh, you know, for what it's worth, I, I'm, we're, we're, we're pretty draconian about using devices at all. M mainly through trial and error, we've realized that when they're on an iPad for a long time, at the end of it, they don't, they're not as pleasant to be around. And so it's not worth, it's not worth the, you know, yeah, they're occupied for that hour that I gave them an iPad, but, but I pay for it 
when when they have to put it down and and i've learned my wife and i have learned it's not worth it so we their screen time and they probably do 10 minutes a week 20 minutes a week at most um and we're look we're really fortunate in the in the pandemic in that um you know we both have enough flexibility that we're able to do that 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 i don't think that's necessarily i don't say that that should be the standard for for quarantine at all because i think people are in very you know people's circumstances vary and that just may not be realistic particularly in quarantine i'm just sharing with you 20 minutes a week is like <laughs> you know does that even count uh, yeah, that just, that's, i mean that just fair. seems like a tease you're just you're just fair. saying you know uh <laughs> there's there's a whole universe but i'm not going to let you see it child uh, but I mean, that's very interesting. With kids that young, they forget. What we found is with kids that young, when it's when it's daily, it's habitual, right? It's in their it's in their day to day consciousness. Like, hey, I want to watch a show. But if it's if it's you know every four, five, eight days, it doesn't it doesn't get habituated, and they kind of forget. And it doesn't it's not tempting them in the way that well, at least that's my that's what I'm telling myself. I might be delusional. No, that's the whole premise here about. About moment, about you know sure. addiction, you know sure. how do you how do you break that cycle? And and I think your point is once you're in the cycle, it's it's near impossible to break. It's just a matter of can you That's right. limit? That's right. Yeah, and then look, I think that it's a really tricky situation as as kids get older because you can be draconian about these social services. Uh, social media services, but, you know, if your kid goes to school with 30 other kids, you know, it's, it's unlikely that their parents are going to be aligned with you. Now, there are frameworks, probably the, the most well-known is wait till eighth, which is basically a framework that you can employ with your kids and the kids' parents in your son or daughter's classroom. And people do it as early as kindergarten. They try to get the whole group of parents to align on a norm, which is that we're not going to give our kids smartphones until they're in eighth grade, which is whatever, 13, 14. Um, you can give them a phone, you can give them a dumb phone, but the point is to right. keep them off of these social networking services. Um, I am hopeful, and I do think there's an interesting business to be built around this, whereby um, there's almost like a self-contained social network that people younger than 13 can use. But it's literally just like a messaging platform. Maybe this already exists and I just don't know it. A messaging platform for, you know, the third graders or fifth graders that they can use to communicate and be social with one another. But it's closed. It's private. The data is protected. And they, it, it, it has this natural way of, of deferring the point at which they get on a Snap or an Instagram or a TikTok. I think that's where we're going to head because I just think these there are too many stories of 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 kind of ten year olds being on TikTok and that just leading to to, to all kinds of downstream issues. Um, and the other thing you can do with these these self contained networks that potentially the school can be an administrator on is a lot of the challenges they have you know, at, at that age, 10 plus is, is there's bullying online, but it's a, he said, it's a, he said versus she said, and there's no way because there's no administrative privileges. When for, for me as a parent or an administrator of school on TikTok, I don't know. I don't know who to believe. So it's a, it's a, he said, it's a, he said, she said battle between kids and parents and administrators. It's a mess. So I, I that has to get, I think that has to get and likely will get solved, especially on the heels of um, things like the social dilemma and, and this just coming into consciousness. And I think when it does, it's going to um, alleviate, I hope, at least some of the challenges that parents are facing with smartphones and these social media services and when the right age, when the right age is to let them get on them. That's a great point to leave it on. There's a there's a trillion dollar idea if anyone wants to pursue it. <laughs> um, and you know, Tim, you know, just wanted to truly say thank you for, uh, you know, for 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 putting the word out there, right, and taking a stand and um, and coming on the show today, obviously, 
And uh, if you haven't already, go check out Moment and and definitely hope to have you back on and keep us posted when you know when when the the friend relationship app is coming out. And uh, thanks again, sir. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Alex.